Welcome to the Pet Photographers Club with your hosts, Caitlin and Kirsty. Tune in as experts share their insights to help grow your business with higher sales, creative marketing, and kick arse business strategies. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Kirsty of Pizza Bernard Photography. And I'm Caitlin of Ragamuffin Pet Photography. And welcome to the final episode of season four, episode 12 of the Pet Photographers Podcast. Our guest today is a fellow Aussie photographer who has won over 250 awards for business, philanthropy, and animal photography. She's also a published author, keynote speaker, wildlife photography tour leader, and brand ambassador. It is the wonderful Alex Sins of Houndstooth Studio. Welcome to the Pet Photographers Club, Alex. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Oh, thanks for joining us. Oh my God, 250 awards. Uh, <laughs> I know. It's almost, um, you have to stop counting after some point. Else you sound a bit ridiculous. I would just stop entering and just put that up there like 250 plus awards. <laughs> um, to be honest, this year I actually haven't entered a lot of awards. I kind of thought, you know what, I think you've, you know, you've kind of got proving to yourself that occasionally you hit on a good image that does well so I you know I really think most of that was just for my own uh, you know validation to myself but I think I've got enough of that now so I've moved on a little bit to other things. Excellent so um Oh, obviously, from what Katie just said, there's so many different um, areas of your career that we could dive into. But um, before that, um, maybe you could uh, or we could backtrack a little bit and you could give us a bit of a rundown about the start, um, you know, of your story really and uh, and uh, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'd love to. So, uh, well, my background is I joined the police force when I was 19, so a long, long time ago now, and I did that as a career for about 14 years. And when I left the police service, I worked uh, for the federal government auditing airports and airlines for their counter-terrorist security measures across Australia, mostly in Western Australia, but we travelled quite a bit. And during that time, I went to Port Arthur and I had a little tiny point and shoot camera and no real interest in photography. I'd always just kind of um, played around now and then and taken bad, blurry photos that you had to get processed at the photo lab in the, um, the old days when you had film. And <laughs> I realised while I was there that my point and shoot camera, you know, one, it was using too much film and two, it didn't have the zoom mechanism that I wanted to be able to take the type of shots that I was realizing that I liked. So it was about, back in about 2006 and as soon as I got back from that trip, I bought my very first $500 basic entry-level digital SLR camera and I played around with it for a few years. I started um, doing outdoor pet photography for people. I, I probably realized within about eight weeks of purchasing that camera that the natural focus of my lens was pets. If I photographed anything else, I just didn't do very well with it. Um, to be honest, I still don't. I really stick to what I know and I don't go outside that too much, which I'm happy with. <laughs> uh, and I had a really pivotal moment there with a friend's family at the park because I was putting out there, you know, I do family portraits and I do still life and I do everything. And my friend's daughter was uh, spinning around doing some ballet and she said, take my photo and wash us twirling. I saw a you know seagull fly past, so I took a picture of that. Then there were some ducks at the park, so I took their photo. And she was spinning around, so she couldn't see that I wasn't actually focused on her. <laughs> and uh, when I got home, I had more photos of seagulls and ducks than I did of my friend's family. And that's kind of when I started to realise I don't think photographing people or spinning children is really my thing. I think I need to stick to <laughs> what I gravitate towards. 
I just kept saying, keep spinning so I can photograph the swans and the ducks. And, and yeah, so I kind of latched onto that very early on. And initially, I guess, um, had a bit of resistance. I was a member of a camera club and remember an elderly gentleman once patted me on the head and said, what do you photograph, love? And I said, oh, I really like photographing animals and pets. And he said, oh, you'll grow out of that. And I thought, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to grow out of it. Um, I mean, even then, pet photography, you know, a decade, 13 years ago, it was kind of seen as the poor relation to any other type of photography. And I definitely don't think it is now. I think, you know, we've all worked together to take beautiful photos and raise the profile of the entire genre, which is amazing. So, um, you know, and that's everyone as a whole industry of pet photographers, we've done that together. Um, so I started doing outdoor photo shoots, $95 for a disc of 100 pictures, not the best business model. Also all been there. <laughs> <laughs> saying that out loud I was like oh what was I thinking so that lasted about five shoots and I hated it and then I just spent I I won my first award so I thought maybe I just you know focus on wildlife photography for a while and in um, September uh, sorry in July 2009 I eventually decided to open a studio in the little room in the bottom of my garden Um, I had a set of lights ready to go that I used for charity projects off-site and I just thought one day I might just try that and within uh, 15 months, the demand for the studio portraits was so great that I left my 19-year government career and next year it's a decade that I've been doing it full-time. So it is a bit of a – sounds like a dream run, but there's been a lot of work in there in between as well. Was there a you know a particular way that you got started um, you know, back in 2009 to launch to get those initial clients and then make it seem like a bit of a dream run? But, <laughs> um, yeah, what was that hard work that you put in? in the very early days, Alex? It's that's a great question because I think you can kind of start a business and limp along like your cousin will book in and then they might eventually show their friend and that friend will book at some point hopefully and, and so it goes. And that's a very slow burn to get people in. I really think particularly with photography, you need some sort of push at the start, some kind of influx of clients that then sets you up. And I, I wish I knew what the number was, whether it's doing 30 shoots or 50 shoots or 70, there's a tipping point where once you hit that number, there's enough of your product out there that people see it and start wanting it. There's enough of your brand reputation out there that people are talking about you and it starts coming back. So for me, the very first thing I did is I spent $800 on a tiny, tiny, tiny ad in the local newspaper, which was gone the next day. Like now to me, you know, there's way better mechanisms that we have to invest, you know, $800 of marketing budget these days. But I put it in that and I booked eight photo shoots. And that was like, wow, eight people want what I do, which I hadn't even started doing yet. So that was amazing. And I think my first client was like an $800 sale and I couldn't even believe that that was what someone would spend on on these images. Um, And And what are people buying now then, Alex? What are they buying now? Yeah, in comparison. Uh, Well, we we maintain an average but um, a lot lot more than that. And back then I think I probably had a very basic – price list with just probably some canvases and prints on it and now we have all mm-hmm. albums yeah. and you know things that people can spend money on if they do want to go a bit more crazy than $800 we have um, you know up to $3,000 kind of packages that sometimes you know people will buy those if they have a few pets um, and it varies it, it varies I mean uh, being really honest about people spending you know you can make $7,000 a week but that could be $1,000 client and a $6,000 client or you know, 12 people all spending a little bit less that adds up to that. So 
Um, we tend to always make an average, but it kind of varies. Um, so that was what I did to get, I guess, initial attention. And those eight shoots, you know, kind of got me started. And I think they really probably just cemented my self-belief that this is something that some people would want. So that was kind of good for my confidence. And then I very, you know, look, again, going back like 10 years, I then did one of those Groupon promotions where you uh, you pay, I think the session fee was like $50 or $35. You got a free print. They got 50% of all the sales sign-up fees. And I think I booked like, you know, 150 sessions. Yeah. And that just then, that must have been my tipping point because by then I'd, you know, pretty much done 158 sessions. Um, that has, once you've got that, you know, artwork in 158 homes, you start to get organic stuff coming back in. So that was really my um, and again, nowadays there are other ways to do that, other mechanisms than using, um, you know, those sort of Groupon, Scoopon sites. But, yeah, that's kind of what the, the big blast was for me. And in terms of managing having such a big influx, so presumably you went from you had your eight clients, maybe you had a couple here and there, and then you did this Groupon and suddenly had 150. Mm-hmm. What was it like sort of workflow, work management-wise for you there? I guess the – the clincher for me, I think in the first six months I had 20 clients that whole year. So then the, the, group, the okay. group one thing was the following year. So we're up to like um, 2010 probably. Um, mm-hmm. Being ex-police background, I'm very task-driven and process-driven. So I was a crime analyst for a period of time in there where you know, have to achieve certain things at the end of each day and have a to-do list. So I'm very super, super highly organised and I have a lot of systems and processes in place. And the first thing I realised was I needed a database or a client record management system. Um, you can't record 150 clients on scraps of paper or just <laughs> in your head. <laughs> so I, I, actually, um, I actually use a software that is not for photographers. It's uh, client record management software for medical clinics. But back then it was the only thing that was adaptable to photography. There wasn't any other kind of um, solid program that I, when I was looking around that I could find. So we still use that to this day. It's it's not as ideal as some of the other software systems out there, but our entire 10-year history database. Mm-hmm. So I had to be very particular about typing up all my templates to send people at all the different stages of their process. And I guess a massive thing was for me was ensuring that going from 20 clients a year to 150 clients in the following year and then some that I didn't drop any standards in my imaging or my customer Mm -hmm. processes or service delivery to clients. And how did you do that? Were you putting on a limit to how many sessions you would shoot per week to make sure you still had time or how was it that you were I'm just imagining if 150 people buy a Groupon in a two-week period or I don't know I'm not familiar with Groupon but in however long did you have this sudden influx of lots of people wanting to book at the same time or how were you spreading that out? Uh, not so much I think we actually sold about okay. probably 200 sessions and 150 ended up booking so there's always a drop-off rate with those gotcha, kind of yeah. and for 35 or $55 they kind of forget they've bought it um, it does amaze me how far people will wait for a pet photo session if it's not urgent. So if their pet is mm-hmm. not well elderly or a puppy or a kitten, um, they will wait six months if they have to, which is kind of kind of interesting. That's kind of crazy. But so we just um, – I basically decided what days I would shoot. And back then I was pretty much doing, to be honest, a, a 100-hour week and I didn't have any doubt around. Like if a client said Sunday at 7 p.m. at night, I'd be like, yeah. okay, you know. Uh, and <laughs> after yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> I do them all at once, but I would probably, you know, 
was probably I was doing a fair whack every week. And then every photo shoot is an in-purchase sales session, so it's two appointments. Mm-hmm. And then they have to pick up their order, so it's three appointments. So you have to kind of factor that in. Um, it wasn't until a few years later when I went, this is just not sustainable, and I really put in boundaries on, you know, I work on, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Saturday, and I shoot at 11, 1, and 3. And that's kind of the model I have now, and I do between 8 and 12 shoots a week and eight purchase appointments a week and that could be you know eight pets or it could be 25 pets depending on how many are booked into each of those sessions so where are the current clients coming from probably two equal sources uh, a lot of i guess i mean i probably photograph about 1300 paid perth pets a year in about 400 to 450 shoots that fluctuates each year a little tiny bit so when you've got you know, artwork out there for 1,300 different animals each year. A lot of people, and I've done that for, like I said, about nine years. So a lot of, all my clients know each other somehow. So someone comes through, someone at work came or their cousin or their sister's niece, it just all their niece, you know, all goes, flows back to a person who knows someone who showed someone. So a lot of referrals or not even that, just people sharing it and then other people seeing it and coming to me directly saying they want the same thing. And then, very careful not to put all my eggs in one basket because you just can't. But Facebook is another amazing mechanism for drawing and attracting clients, um, especially something super simple like doing a preview, one preview picture from every photo shoot. I'm putting up, you know, eight to 12 bits of content a week. And, you know, it's got to the point where if I post a German Shepherd photograph and a German Shepherd owner sees it and they like it, they'll, you know, I'll book three German Shepherd photo shoots in from that. So, a lot from Facebook and a lot from people just talking about it and, re- and recommending me. So are you posting those preview photos before they've come in for their in-sales appointment? Yeah, I do. So I do the photo shoot and then normally within about three to five days I post one preview picture. Actually, I do three, but I'm not mm-hmm. I used to do seven, so I've cut down, but I haven't quite got to one yet. But I recommend if you can just give, you know, put one on, give people one really strong picture that, that you kind of like. And then they normally come back a few days after that for their, their purchase appointment. I'm going to play devil's advocate because we always have um, both our guests and our audience are always in two camps. They're either the very pro posting a preview or they're in the camp of, no, I don't want to post anything because what if that affects the sale, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, how does the preview sort of help? Well, firstly, you're giving the client something to a a teaser of what's to come so that they're engaged. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is actually... I, I see those preview pictures not even so much for the client as but they're marketing collateral for other people to see. So I'm actually using mm-hmm. that for my benefit. Yes, there's a slim chance they can download. I make them high, you know, pretty low res. They actually look a bit on my you know, big computer screen. They can look a bit rubbish. They look great on the phone, but the resolution of Facebook, if you make something small, is a little bit sketchy. Um, but I, I quite often too have clients in purchase appointments who purchase the Facebook preview pictures. So mm. and I sometimes ask them, is this because you've looked at it a thousand times or is it because you actually, there, there's some sway there that they think, I think these are the best images or they just think mm-hmm. they're the best images. I just try and go for kind of different, if I'm putting up three photos, three different types of pictures. Um, I'm also a big believer that if you're going to use the internet and if you're going to use social media, you use it fully. You either don't or you do. And we're in the business where it is currently especially Facebook, even Instagram, um, they are two of the best marketing platforms that we have to be able to reach people without even leaving your home. You have 
on your Facebook pages, a captive audience of people sitting in there watching what you're doing, seeing your content. Um, you know, you can push things out to them at different times. So it's highly valuable. And if you're worried about someone stealing one image, um, you know, then perhaps don't use it. But if I highly recommend people do, the the payoff for that could be booking three clients who all spend, you know, $2,000 each for the sake of one client that might rip off an image and, you know, take a free print or something similar to that. So I think the benefits outweigh the suspicion we have about it. Um, interestingly, I find I did a presentation recently at a bird photographer's conference and there's probably um, – you know, 150 people in the room maybe, and I asked them, you know, who has a social media presence and they all, 90% of them put their hand up. And when I said who actually understands, has a general understanding of what they're doing, everyone put their hand down except for the MC of the event. Um, so that, <laughs> this goes to show a lot of people on Facebook don't actually know its full potential and don't actually, you know, understand the power of it. So when you don't understand something, it could be scary you try mm-hmm. once and it doesn't work. Like, why does it work for Alex, but it's not working for me? How come, you know, this person's getting this response? I don't. Um, and when you kind of truly just hit on how it can work in its most effective capacity, it's a really, really powerful tool. So it's just one tool. You have to still have a few other, you know, hats on as well. Do Still do events. Still make sure your website's up to date. Still, um, you know, have do you know speaking events if you can if you can get in front of audiences and talk about what you do sell vouchers to people on location and stuff like that but yeah social media is a great one to to bring people in so on that note Alex what you're saying about doing it right basically I noticed you've got like I think 120 something thousand followers on your Facebook page I'm assuming most of them are actually not local to you though would do you think that's right uh, the split is about probably not quite two thirds in Australia and a, quite a lot in the states. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do use boosted Facebook targeting for things, and I have uh, speaking gigs in the states, and I have books released in the states as well. So I quite often target Australia and the USA for some things, and then yeah. a few the other like ten percent from all over, all sorts of random places. Um, but a majority yeah. are in Australia. Um, I was a very early adopter of Facebook, so back mm-hmm. in probably 2007, I had a friend who said, I'm moving to Japan. There's this website you can join and we can keep in touch and I can show you my photos. So <laughs> I joined it, didn't even know what it was. And I don't think I even even looked at any of her photos. And I was on there for a whole year before suddenly I heard everyone talking about Facebook, this you know amazing new thing. And I remembered, oh, that's what my friend told me to get on. I have a subscription to that. So I literally had been on there for a year before it even became kind of, you know, before it blew up. So mm-hmm. I had my business page on there. I think it's been on there for about 12 years. Um, and just, you know, my $800 investment now, if I put $800 into promotion on Facebook, it would just, you know, the your page numbers just go through the roof if you target something mm. people. And I would never spend that in one go on Facebook because you just don't need to. You can spend $30, $20, you know, you don't have to go that crazy. So how have you grown it then, Alex? Obviously time um, and because you were in early then, you know, our money used to go a lot further. Yeah. Um, but it must be continuing, continuously growing and is it all organic though? So I run um, a constant uh, ad on my page, like a daily spend. So I have an advertising budget of $35 a week, $5 a day, which is pretty cheap for us advertising goes. And that's just a general whole page boost so that my page is out there all the time being 
pitched to different people on Facebook to make sure that my likes keep increasing. Um, when you have a high volume of followers on Facebook, if I just post a, a picture of a type of dog that 10 people don't like, they'll unfollow the page. So my numbers can, although they're high, they I can have massive amounts drop really quickly because people are funny like that and they'll just, you know, <laughs> like chickens. So they'll unlike the page because I posted it. This ensures my numbers are always, if I lose 10 in one day, I gain 30, so I'm 20 ahead. Um, so I use, I use, I, I run that all the time. And then I always get an influx. Um, the other things that I do, I guess, feed into that as well. So firstly, every client gets a preview, so they have to be on there. They share with their friends, so I'm already pulling in all those people that are seeing that post and then they're jumping on. Um, every time we do an event, we promote People come up, we say, follow us on Facebook, get out your phone now, give us, jump on, follow what we do. Um, every time I get a piece of media for a book or a project that I do, um, particularly my book on disabled animals that came out last year, I think I did 125 global media interviews. Uh, they were either radio, um, on TV or in, in writing. And my Facebook and Instagram numbers. You know, my, my Instagram was on like 10,000. It went up to 40,000 and my Facebook as well. I probably picked up, you know, five or 6,000 people just from that, from people reading an article and me ensuring that my Facebook and Instagram and website are always listed at the bottom of any article that I'm asked to do or to participate in. So just that some of that stuff is organic that in fits and starts and just boosting posts that can bring me income. So if I post, a special voucher offer or I post I've got a new book out or a calendar and it's anything that can generate income, they're the posts that I boost on Facebook and they're the ones, therefore, that bring in a return. So it all feeds back through that. Mm-hmm. So you just mentioned, um, Alex, about these um, media interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, I didn't realise there were so many. I did see on your website that there was, you know, some TV um, ones and Netflix and everything like that. How do they come about? I mean, are you sourcing them yourself? Have you got somebody else helping you? Have you got PR or are they coming to you? Um, A little bit of both. So I find the best way to work with the media is quite often just to go to them direct myself, not through a third party or anything like that because they really just want to talk to me. They don't want to talk to someone else just to find out what time is she available and me passing it on and them passing it on and it gets so, you know, I just kind of go direct with them. Uh, with books or one piece of media will generally bring in other bits of media. So media um, links to other media. So with that situation, I think I had um, a spot on one of the morning shows and so then news.com contacted me and then from that um, the Guardian saw that and then, you know, um, BuzzFeed saw it and then, you know, MTV News saw it and it, it just flows on. So there are people out there in these um, that work for these organisations that are constantly trawling the internet for stories they think people will relate to that they can share or re-interview the person that they're based on to create new content about the same subject. So a lot of them were organic like that. They just flowed on. And anytime I ever do an interview, I always maintain obviously the contact details of the person who I record the contact details of the person I spoke to. And I'm not afraid to, if I have a a new or another idea or a new book or something to go back to them and say, Hey, two years ago, you were really great. You did this. I'm now on working on this project or this book. Um, you know, if you've liked some info, here's the media brief, here's some images. And I send them all 
not the actual written interview, but I send them all the details and some photos and then they can say yes or no. Um, Yeah, so you're making it easy for them because you're already supplying all the content that they need. Pretty much. Or they might just say, can we ask you some questions? And because I have a media share, I can pretty much, you know, you know, it's just stuff like what motivated you to do this book, say it's a book or project, you know, um, what do you love about it, Who's what animal in it really touched you. It's just general questions and I write my answers to those beforehand so they can kind of tweak and cut and paste and tailor it to what they want particularly but I've got a lot of the content written down and I found find that that's worked really well. So just going to them. Um, it's also about knowing the patterns of media. You can't put something out every two months because they will only pick stuff up for you about probably twice a year. You need a good uh, gap in between. I actually had two books out last year and the first book got all those interviews and the second one because it was 10 months later, it was just too close even though it's a completely different book to talk about Alex Kearns has a book in March, then Alex Kearns has a book in November. It was I did like five interviews for the second one because it was just the time period was um, way too familiar with the subject matter and the time frame. So pros and cons <laughs> to all that sort of stuff. Um, even though that book has sold really well in the market, probably nearly um, you know, as well as the first one did. So. Yeah, it's just a matter of timing and knowing what they want. They want good stories. So they don't just want to know, oh, I photograph dogs all day, that's what I do. They want to know, I photographed a dog that had been in care for 600 days and did you, the public, know that there are dogs in rescue centres that have been there for 600 days and we should go and adopt a dog this weekend and go and check out the shelters? And they want something that's a bit meaty and that has a purpose and, you know, a reason to it and even a bit of, um, you know, compassion behind it. They love that sort of stuff. So it's picking and choosing what you're pitching to them as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so speaking of your books, do you want to give us a little bit of an insight into that? Because I know there's several that you've published so far, but how did you sort of break into that? Uh, I'm a mass. Actually, I'm just going to share with you guys. I'm actually signing another contract this week, which is really exciting because um, (laughs) uh, every time I've done a book, that could be it. You're never guaranteed another one. And especially if, if one mm-hmm. doesn't sell, you're definitely not guaranteed another one. So it, you, you're always a bit nervous just um, waiting. Uh, I, I'm a big believer in something called the debt ledger. <laughs> so if someone does something for you, you do something for them. And if you do something for them, it's okay to ask a favor at some point. And I'm very okay. non-committal when I – or non-pushy when I ask people for things. So my first book deal came about there was a book on rescue – dogs and a client asked me if they could use one of the photographs I'd taken of their dog in the book for free. I said, yes. So I gave the publisher the image for free because it was just in a book of had about 80 photos in it and written text. It was like a novel with photographs. Then about a year later, they were doing a sequel to the book. And this time the publisher wanted a certain dog on the front cover. Who's a bit of a celebrity dog in um, over East. And I had photographed that dog a few times in my studio and they wanted to use one of my photographs. So they came to me and said, the dog owner has referred us to you. We know you gave us a picture last time. We will now pay you for a cover photograph. And, Cover pictures of books pay quite well. So I was like, oh, that's great. So I had a contact, a direct contact with the publisher, and I, you know, knew that also it was okay to ask because I'd done them a favour last time. I very um, carefully just said, oh, and hey, by the way, if you ever need animal photos for anything, keep me in mind. So I'm always um, very careful not to say, oh, what, do you want to do a book with me or I've got photographs you could have because they'd be like, mm. they get hit up with that all the time. So I just mm-hmm. keep in mind. Uh, literally two weeks later, my phone rang and it was the editor from the publisher and she said, we'd like to offer you a book. We thought about what you said. And they had come up with this book concept for me, which was Mother Knows Best. 
baby animals and little quotes about things your mum mom says to you, <laughs> uh, like all the greens and stuff like that. So, and then from that, um, I signed a, another book deal with them in the same year, and then I did a, a kind of a dual book with a, a dog trainer where I supplied the pictures, she supplied the text, and then I moved to a publisher in New York for Zen Dogs. Um, the New York book came about because I got a bit of press for a photo series I just put out online. Um, people saw it on my Facebook page and it started getting picked up of dogs with their eyes closed. So they were images I used to delete because the dog's eyes were closed. Like who wants a photo of their dog's eyes closed? <laughs> and I, about five or six years ago, I sh- accidentally left one in for a purchase appointment and it was a Sharpe and the clients went, oh, my God, that's the best photo. She's meditating. And I was like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> pictures, but they bought it as a great big you know, aluminium for the wall. So I then started leaving them in because the Zen dog photos, as they became coined, people loved them because – you know, the dog looks zen and happy and really it's a split-second fluke shot. So I kind of have little folders and I collate stuff, smiling dogs, zen dogs, dogs doing high fives, to try and see patterns and, you know, just anything that could go out as a series. And I put zen dogs out as a series and one night at about 10.30 at night my phone rang and the iPhone has a thing on it that says New York or where they're from. Like New York was calling. I was like, wow, that's amazing. I love New York. Better answer that call. <laughs> and it was the Huffington Post. And they rang and said, we saw your Zen Dogs pictures. Would you let us do an article on them in our wellness section about how these are, make people feel good and the dogs are really chill? And I said, yes. And then the following morning, 24 hours after that story rang, ran, I had an email from um, HarperCollins in New York City publisher there saying, we saw your series. Would you like to do a book? Um, it then took nine. So that sounds like, again, it fell in my lap, but it took nine, <laughs> nine probably about maybe not nine, probably four or five months at least of me waking up four days a week at about three o'clock in the morning because that was three o'clock in the afternoon in New York to check my email to be able to write to her in real time to go through where all my Facebook followers were from, what I can bring to the table as far as the book goes, nailing down the concept, answering little questions, um, just for her to try and get it across the line for her sales team and eventually we did. And then I've um, done two more books since then with HarperCollins Australia and soon to be another one. So, yeah, it's been quite amazing. So, Alex, sorry, can you just um, give us a brief idea of how it works finding the dogs to use for these? Yeah, so most of the books to date have just been um, all of them are studio images that I've just taken off clients' pets. Uh, Occasionally, if they want like 60 certain dogs for a book, I might go and shoot or photograph five extra dogs just to fill it. And I I just put a call out amongst my own network saying I need five greyhounds of different colours for this project and they will come on one day and I just do them one by one. Um, And I normally gift people for that, like an 8 by 10 print or something for coming in. I get permission from everyone whose dogs are in the book. Um, One of the books is just wildlife, so that was just my own stuff that I was photographing out and about. So none of them, uh, the next book I actually have to shoot for the entire thing, but that's the first one I have to shoot for from start to finish because I don't have anything that I can use as yet. But everything else, you know, Zen Dogs, I'd already collated 100 photos of dogs with their eyes closed in a folder. So when they said, can we do a book, I'm actually not too control freaky about it. I literally sent them the best 100 pictures I thought could work and they picked 60 of them. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, same with um, perfect imperfection, you know, animals with disabilities. I've picked, you know, 70 animals with disabilities because I, I can't choose sometimes. It's too hard. They're like, you know, they're my little furry friends. I can't say which one. <laughs> so I just put it on the publisher and they pick and choose. And then, and then I talk about I have um, control over what goes on the cover. Quite often when you do a book, particularly a novel, you don't have any control over what's on the front. And that is normally my hill to die on. The picture I want on the front, I want on the front. And I will negotiate on the title of the book or a few other factors, but I won't negotiate on what photograph I want on the front cover because I, I kind of have a pretty strong sense of what people respond to in an animal portrait, given I photograph I sell people their own animal portraits all the time. So, yeah, so that, that works as far as um, – you know, kind of getting the content for the sh- for the shoots. It's just going through my own archives and looking for patterns. And you'll notice my series that are out there: dogs catching treats, or dogs licking their noses, or eating food. They're themed. There's a series that people have either incorporated into their their daily shoots, or they've worked on as a separate thing that they've um, collated the images from. And then how publishing deals work is the publisher comes to you with an offer. So let's say for argument's sake, you've got a really a good offer of like twenty thousand dollars. You accept that offer, they pay a third when you sign the offer, a third when you deliver the content, which is normally about within four or five months, and then a third when the book is published. And the lead-in process for that normally takes about 18 months. So 20 grand is great, but you're not getting it um, until the whole 18 months is up. So if you were just an author living off that, it's kind of tough to make a living in, in that way, then... As far as your deal goes, it, they will vary slightly, but generally until you then sell 20,000 copies of that book, you basically get a dollar per book, say, credited off what they paid you at the start. So if I did receive $20,000, I'd have to sell 20,001 copies to make one extra dollar on top of the $20,000 I was paid. Okay. So it kind of pays itself back if that makes sense. You get paid 20 grand, but then you, if you get paid five grand, you've only got to sell 5,000 copies and then the next one you sell, you make a dollar. Um, and then your book is its in the positive instead of the negative. Uh, you never have to, if you, you get paid $20,000 and your book only sells, you know, a thousand copies, you don't have to pay $19,000 back or anything, but you'll never get another book deal because your sales just aren't strong enough. It, you know, it didn't quite, it didn't earn out. You want to earn out whatever the advance was. You want to meet that in sales so that um, you make a dollar. So, they're, to be honest, it takes time to do that and they're not instant money makers. If you have a global success book, obviously, you know, I'm sure there's a couple of even pep talkers I can think about that would have made, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not maybe a million bucks from some of their books. Um, but generally it's a slow burn just as as long as your book stays current, people keep buying it and six of my uh, – five of my six books are still – out there earning in some capacity um, and I usually they'll have different things attributed to them for charities and stuff but basically until you get to that break even point there isn't any money to even donate to those things until you sell that certain number of copies. Speaking of um, you know your partner charities and donating to those um, I know that you have a, a lot of involvement in various different you know animal rescues charities philanthropy in general do you want to chat to us a little bit about what you're doing there yeah sure I started working with charity very early on one because I love animals but also it wasn't completely selfless because 13 years ago I needed access to animals didn't Mm -hmm. only had eight clients initially so I was like oh I need to photograph things so I then approached um, uh, the RSPCA uh, at the time because I realized they didn't have a dedicated 
animal photographer. If I look up a charity and they do, I stay away because that's someone else's patch. And I kind of have a lot of ethics around, you know, on someone else's um, relationships or partnerships. And then I also went to one of our wildlife centers. So I was photographing dogs and cats at the RSPCA and then wildlife. So I had access to everything. So photographing kangaroos and possums and all sorts. And then from that, it was never actually meant to be anything to do with business and booking photo shoots from doing charity. For me, it was just an intrinsic belief I had that if you're working with animals, you should also give back to them in some way. There should be some exchange. You know, animals are helping me earn income. I'm photographing people's pets. How about I photograph, you know, outside of that and give back um, anything I can. So I actually had a manager there for a while, a separate manager that I paid to stop me giving everything away because <laughs> I would earn, earn income and be like, oh, I can fly overseas and do a project and fund it all and then have a big exhibition and give them all the money, uh, which is what I do. I don't take my costs out of anything. I try not to, you know, if I'm running if I fly to Cambodia to photograph rescue bears and then I run an exhibition, I, you know, don't say, okay, we raised $25,000, but it cost me $5,000 to put this on and $5,000 to fly over to Cambodia and do all the work. Uh, so you only make $15,000. I actually give them everything and we absorb all the costs. So I've evolved from doing just adoption shoots day to day to doing project work. So I have an idea. I go to the respective charities and I shoot uh, projects for them and then try and raise them good sums of money. Funds or awareness are always my goals, either raise funds or raise awareness or both. So I don't get a no very often. I've never approached a charity and said, let's do this and had them say no because they know that my brand brings media, it brings, um, you know, funds and awareness and they're going to get something and they'll get, and I give them all the images as well, just give them all for free. So I do that freely and fully. And as far as the media goes on that stuff, uh, in talking about the charities, yes, there's a payoff because I get a mention, but I always make those articles about the images because that's the interest and the animals. Yes, I took them, so I might have a quote or something in there, but I want the images and the animals to be at the forefront because that's what can, you know, the right person looking at the right photo at the right time can lead to an adoption, a donation, all sorts of amazing things can happen. So that's always my driving force. And then from that, um, it's grown and now, you know, a lot of people bring their rescue dogs to me. Um, even when I started, I probably, out of 100 dogs in 10 years ago, 10 might have been rescue and now out of 100 dogs, 80 would be rescue. So rescue's really come a long way and um, majority of my clients are now rescue dogs as well. So in terms of raising funds for these charities that you might be partnering with, um, you mentioned doing exhibitions, but how how else are you helping them raise funds there? Another, well, sometimes they use the images in calendars and they sell them to their right. you know, pretty established, loyal fan bases and markets of their own. Uh, another great thing that I like to do every year, I haven't done it this year, but the last three years, I've tried to do um, a limited edition print just sold through Facebook. So the first one I did was of for free the bears in Cambodia. I photographed these little rescue bears coming and going from their little den. And then I photoshopped the same window 16 times. So it looked like a little apartment building with these two-year-old bear cubs coming and going. And I put it on Facebook and I said, hundred copies, a hundred dollars each, all the money goes to the charity. And we sold out in five days and made $10,000. Amazing. I then speak to sponsors. So I went to a paper sponsor who gave me the paper. I went to my print lab and said, look, you know, these, the, the prints I think were, um, you know, 16 by 16 in size or something. You know, these are normally X number of dollars each. They said, look, we'll 
we'll do them for you a dollar each. So the prints cost me a hundred dollars. Um, I did shoot myself in the foot for that one cause I forgot to factor in postage and then I had to send out a hundred prints at dollars oh. each. <laughs> but so now we say the prints a hundred plus $10 for postage in a tube anywhere in the world kind of thing. And if it's a few dollars, over, I cover it, but, um, that's the only thing we, we don't take that out. We just add it on. So, um, we've done that with, we did a hundred copies for the bears. Then we did 150 copies for a koala print and then which sold out and then people still wanted more. And then we did a uh, hundred copies for some a wombat print as well and for different charities, um, particularly passionate about Australian wildlife. So we raised a bit of money for them. And um, yeah, people want, people who've followed that from the start want each picture that's released as a limited edition to add to their set. So they've got mm. all the pictures and yeah. So that's just another great way too, to use social media. If you've got a captive group of people in there who are following what you do, um, they respond really well when you, give them something and there's a lot of crowdfunding out there now where people are asking for things for free instead i'll give you a picture and you give me a hundred dollars and i'll give that to charity so there's a, a fair exchange in there they're actually getting something tangible for that that, that they can see and enjoy alex oh my goodness you've shared so much can we just do a bit of a recap and give the audience a little bit of an overview of kind of the breakdown of what you're doing now <clears throat> excuse me because there's such a lot so I mean it sounds like Houndstooth is bringing in majority of your income but then you also do tours some education which we haven't even mentioned and um and your books as well so what's the actual breakdown there so at the moment yeah Houndstooth is still the majority of what I do every week I do three days a week of photography and I cram um my eight to 12 shoots and eight purchase appointments into three days. So they're sometimes 17-hour days for those three days. Um, God. Don't feel too sorry for me because I get two or three days off generally a week as well, depending on what else I've got going on. Uh, I I mean, sorry, Alex, yeah. side note, we will feel sorry for you. Most people get two days off a week. <laughs> Actually, I normally get three, but I've just I've just increased my business coaching, so that's taken up two days a week now. So I'm now working five days a week, which is a shock to the system. But um, <laughs> And for me um, – Coaching is just sitting, having conversations with people and helping them. So mm-hmm. not as labor intensive as photography where I'm crawling around on the floor and you know, wrestling with dogs and playing with dogs. So the breakdown is, um, yeah, at the moment, majority is pet photography, three days a week. I do two full days a week of business coaching. Um, most of my clients are in Australia and overseas and they're, I do pet and portrait photographers, but mostly pet photographers. Um, and then I have my two days off where I normally just do gardening at home and really benign things. And so that's probably my income would be a good split between those two. And then a little bit from uh, books, uh, the education, occasionally um, twice a year I'll run a outdoor animal photography session at a wildlife park. Um, some years I've done six of those. Some years I do one or two. So a little bit comes in from that as well. And um, then, yeah, a lot of travel in there, doing speaking engagements and uh, leading photographic tours to amazing places um, and the books. My, my main focus right now, because the pet photography is so established and just rolls itself out, is um, growing my business coaching services, um, which I really enjoy. And I think moving forward into the future, that's something that I will probably do more of. Um, but I also think that as a coach, it's very important to – keep shooting because if you're out of the market, if I probably wasn't photographing and using social media and hearing client feedback and looking at where people are spending and where they aren't, I'd lose touch with that within probably about six to 12 months. So mm-hmm. to yeah, me, definitely. 
Yeah, and I find it kind of sometimes a bit astounding that there are some coaches who haven't taken a photograph for 20 years and they're, they're coaching. And, and <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll go on Facebook tomorrow and it'll change. I'm like, wow, if I didn't go on there to do that client preview, I wouldn't have seen that little thing they've just tweaked that can upset everything that we're trying to do on there or, or change something. So uh, I will always photograph pets to some capacity, but um, – I've been so guarded in how I've run my business for so long. And then I just went, you know what, if I can help people with this, that actually brings me great joy and my knowledge has a value and, you know, people get value when they work with me. So um, I, it's something like that I'm really passionate about doing moving forward. Oh, wow. Alex, so much information there that you've just shared with everybody. Um, I feel like we only touched the tip of your career iceberg too. I was like, oh, my goodness, it's 45 minutes. We were supposed to. And I was like, thank you so much. Um, if, so for the listeners, that was Alex. I guess we mostly dived into how she's running her business, um, her book publishing, started touching on some different aspects of her very large career. Uh, We will have all the links and resources mentioned in our show notes for this episode. So just visit the petphotographersclub.com forward slash podcast forward slash 0412. This is our final interview episode for season four. We do have our very last episode coming the next week or the week after, and that's our 2019 wrap up with Kirsty and I. And season five will be coming back in January. So don't worry, listeners, you don't have long to wait until you can hear some more awesome interviews with pet photographers from around the world. And in the meantime, you know, you can head back into other archives, you can read our show notes and listen to episodes right back from season one on the website. There's some really great content there. They're also staying very active in the Pet Photographers um, Facebook group. So if you're a member, we'll keep the discussion going in there. If you're not a member yet, um, come back. Club membership does get you access to our mastermind group on Facebook that we just I just mentioned. So head on over to the petphotographersclub.com to find out more. Thanks for everything today, Alex. Um, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. As always, Kirsten and I wish you all the success in your business. And we will see you next season. Bye for now. Bye. Oh my Bye. goodness, Alex. <laughs> you are amazing. Oh really? Sorry, I thought I was I'm like, oh god, they're going to be asleep hearing about that. No, <laughs> no, because it's something that most—I mean, most domestic, or yeah, most pet photographers that are listening, including ourselves, are not. You know, we haven't done before, so it's all new to us. Which I think it's you know, so it's super interesting because of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, you. you guys ask great questions, so I hope they get oh, something. Thank you so much. We'll um, we'll shoot you an email. This should come out. November um but yeah we'll just email you with the links and stuff but thank you for your time we really appreciate it oh no worries and I'll make sure I share on everything as well when it comes out oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> oh, Alex, I don't know if um we asked you an email or if you wrote back or not but if there's a particular offer that you have for your coaching that you want us to put in the show notes just shoot us through um an email with that I'll try and think how to word it do you know what my biggest problem is at the moment that I don't have time to coach all the people that because I need to, I can only do six clients because <laughs> it's three hours a week each person on Skype. But they oh, on. yeah. Um, so I don't have a but, and I also only take people that I think one take good photos and two that I can help because some people yeah learn how to take a picture before we even start kind of thing. So, um, mm-hmm. but maybe I can just mention 
what it is and they can contact me if they want to discuss or something. But um, I'm, I'm looking at um, doing an online – I'm actually working on a website right now for an online program because I just can't meet demand and I don't want to turn people That's off. Clever. Yeah, it has to be scaled because it's literally I, on the, those two days I spend 12 to 14 hours consecutively talking on Skype and it's, just, it's great but – Oh, exhausting. Yeah, my voice runs out. So, yeah, so, but it's going really well, which is good. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk more to us about business. Um, Hopefully, we get to catch up somewhere along the line when we're I'm sure our paths will cross somewhere when we're doing something. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Hey, listeners, I uh, accidentally kept recording at the end of that interview, but I figured I'd leave it in since we did briefly touch on. Um, Alex's coaching. So since we did that interview, her Facebook coaching site is now live and operational. It's open to photographers of all levels. We'll pop a link in the show notes, but it's called Inspire as in I-N-S-P and then Hire, H-I-G-H-E-R with Alexians. And the, um, yeah, the link, as we said, is in the show notes. So I figured I'd leave that little last random chatty bit in there. Um, just because I, I get the giggles anyway when I hear us recording, but we don't know what's recording always. Anyway, um, hope you enjoyed that interview. It was really an awesome one. Thanks so much, Alex. And we will catch you for the final episode of season four. Bye for now. <laughs>